You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at WGU.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Jeffrey Frank. He's a terrific, brilliant author. Uh, we are going to discuss uh, today his book, The Trials of Harry S. Truman, which I just finished a few months ago. It's superb. But Mr. Frank was also a senior editor at The New Yorker and the deputy editor of the Washington Post Outlook section. He is the author of another terrific book, which he said he will come back on the podcast to discuss, and that's Ike and Dick, Portrait of a Strange Political Marriage which reminded me a lot in its own ways of Jules Whitcover's book called Strange Bedfellows, which was about Nixon and Agnew, perhaps the strangest bedfellows of all. Mr. Frank, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Mr. Bain. Nice to meet you. Nice to be here. So let's get started very quickly on, on who Harry Truman was. You, you focus on his administration, I would say more on foreign policy than domestic policy, but but. The beginning of your book is kind of a short biography of how Truman got to the Senate and then eventually the vice presidency in 1944. So so in your mind, who is Harry Truman and how did he sort of. I'm not going to say accidentally ascend to a high place in politics in Washington, D.C., but it doesn't appear to be part of some grand plan. 
No, actually, what's interesting, he actually, his he really didn't begin his political career or he's in Washington, he was 50 years old. He'd written for, he'd run for some local offices. He was the county judge in Jackson County, which by the way had nothing to do with being, nothing to do with the law. It was just basically a county administrator. And, but then it just, it sort of happened. Uh, he was, he was, he was close to boss Pendergast who was running the democratic machine there, which is a, a slightly corrupt machine. But Truman, Truman himself was pretty clean. And, uh, and then, it, and then it, Pendergast said, would you like to run for Congress? And Truman said, yeah, I'd love to. And then Pendergast said, well, you, actually you can't. But here you you can you could run for the Senate, which was a really long shot, and that was 1950. I mean, I'm sorry, 1934, and he he did he he won with 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 a little help from some friends. Uh, <laughs> Is that what we call it these days? Yeah. <laughs> but he was someone who was very proud of his sort of everyman roots, and how did that translate into his public service career? Well, that was real. He had his. He really was. He was. I think he was very proud of having served in 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 World War One. He was actually faced combat. That was a when he was in, when he was in the in France uh, with with the with with the with the with the, Ameri- with the Allied forces. You know, Franklin Roosevelt was in Washington. He was the Assistant Secretary of, of the Navy. I mean, so Truman Truman of, of that period. Truman was was you know, he was proud of that, and he was proud of. He was proud of, of his own background. He'd been a farmer, someone someone who didn't who was not a big fan of Truman. Um, uh, the, the editor of the Kansas City Star said when he became president, here's a man who spent 10 years looking at the rear end of a horse because he, he was plowing the fields outside Grandview. And uh, but he he was uh, but he was a tough guy. And that, that and that that's and that's what that prepared him. And when he was in the Senate. He um, he sort of had a sort of a great old time for his first term, but after he won his second term in 1940, he began to settle down. He became a serious, a much more serious legislator, and he had the idea of, of chairing a committee to look at waste and fraud in the defense industry. This is before the war started, and he was successful enough that he was on the cover of Time magazine. And he was a tough, a tough guy who, who knew what he wanted and he studied hard. And I think that's and that was also the, the that was also the real Truman. He also, but he was also a a man who was limited by his background in some way. He was a, he was the descendant of, he was the son of the grandson of the Confederacy, and that didn't that left, that stayed with him. He was born, I think, was it eighteen eighty four, May eighth, eighteen eighty four. Yeah. And so, how much did it matter in your mind to Missouri voters that he had looked at the back end of a horse or a mule? Was it a time still when that sort of rural background much? closer to the Thomas Jefferson view of what the United States should be still had some cachet. I don't think, I don't think, I think it was, I think it did have cachet in a sense, but that was, that was before he, that was before he, that was before he was, he was in the, in the infantry and, 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 and was a com, so combat in, 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 in France, but, but, but of course it, it, it did count. I mean, he was, a, he was one of them and, and, uh, and, and he, and Jackson County was a, was a deep part of him, a real part of him. And, uh, so I think it, I think it did count with voters in Jackson, and also he knew everyone in the county. So that's how that that sort of got him his start um, in, in a sort of local office. But between between the Trumans and the and the Wallace, his his family, best his best Wallace, his his wife's family, they knew basically everybody. That's, a, that's there, an exaggeration, but he was a really uh, he was very much plugged into his to his to his local part of the, his part of the world. Is there any? You mentioned his service in World War One. Is there any record, and we'll get to this later, that he ever was in the presence or met 
Douglas MacArthur while over no, they were no. both over in France? Never, never, never. I think he was no, he not even not even General Pershing, but he was no, he wasn't. I mean, and you know, Eisenhower was somewhere. Eisenhower, by the way, at that time was somewhere training training soldiers in out in Texas. I mean, no, no, he was he was uh, he was just uh, he was a he was kind of a a grunt, but he became more than that. And I think what he he discovered that he could he could win the respect of of men. He could command men. And this was, by the way, this was a a, a Missouri Baptist, and he was commanding, you know, Catholics from Irish Catholics from from Kansas City, and he, he he pulled it off, and that sort of gave him a lot of confidence, and that was that that was very important to him too. And he was a slight man, as opposed to like Patton, who was bigger, and some of the other more kind of commanding presence. Truman he, would he, would be a point guard in today's society. Yeah, but you know that's true enough. But I was actually Truman was a little bit sensitive about that. But after he met Truman, after he met Stalin and Churchill, they were all they were all short guys. I think I think Stalin was the shortest, but I think they're all about five five or five six. And uh, and and, Tr- and Truman was very much aware of that. And and say he was uh, and and he was sensitive about his his height and, and his slightness. But um, how did his time in the Senate, to the extent you can be? But how did his time in the Senate, he was elected in 34, he joins Franklin Roosevelt's ticket for the fourth term in 44, they d- displace Henry Wallace, and we'll ask, I'm going to ask you about him in terms of, of Truman's reception from the more progressive or liberal wing of the party, but how did his being in the Senate train him to be president? Because he was vice president for only three months, two months, three months, three months. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 I don't, I'm not sure that it did. He, I mean, he, he, he I mean, you really, it's a job that you really can't train for. And, uh, but he, he, he was able to sort of, he was a legislator and, and he, he could, he got along with, 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 his, with his fellow uh, senators. And I, I think, and, and he, he didn't know much about, about a, a, say foreign affairs, but he learned, he, as I said earlier, he was a good student. He really immersed himself in the briefing books, in the papers and so on, after Roosevelt died. And he was, um, and uh, it's when he first met um, Avril Harriman, who rushed back from, 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 from Moscow, Avril Harriman was the American ambassador to the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. Uh, as, and Harriman started to talk about you know, I don't, you know, did you did you read the stuff I sent you? Are you are you aware that Stalin is not keeping his word about 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 Poland? And Truman said, Yeah, I'm. I've, I read I read everything, and I think Truman really had read everything. Uh, he, I'm not sure he quit, completely understood it, but he had read it. He, he he so he was a good student. In that sense, he became more and more ready to be president. He and by the way, I don't think by that time he had not been told about this thing we had developed called an atomic bomb that came that came just about just about then and uh the so device was, was, wasn't it that's right. what it was called the device yeah did so let's talk a little bit please you mentioned it uh in your book and it's been mentioned obviously in other treatments of truman's life so roosevelt's elected to a fourth term in november of 44 he defeats defeats thomas dewey he's inaugurated in january isn't that right? The lame duck amendment had already taken place. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's a, inaugurated in January of 45. He dies April 12th of 45. Right. Right. So Truman is basically for three months, vice president and everything I've ever read about Truman, including your treatment. Uh, it mentions just how out of the loop and uninformed Truman was as vice president, that it was like almost purposeful by franklin roosevelt to keep him away or just not consider him is that overstating it do biographers get that wrong or is it like no 
in our it, compared to what we do these days, the vice president, Vice President Truman was alarmingly uninformed and uninvolved. No, that's that's about that's about right. Um, he um, when uh, after after they after Truman after Roosevelt and Truman were nominated for the Democratic ticket, um, they had lunch. They had one lunch. They had lunch lunch together in August, in August of 1944 on the White House lawn. And that was it. That was the only time that I can find where they actually had had a time together. He 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 saw Roosevelt. There were some meetings with, with with some of the cabinet people and other and, and legislators, but but he never. That was his one time alone with Roosevelt. He was completely un, uninformed. He complained to people that later on that he wasn't. He, he was told he was told nothing, and that's so. That's absolutely true. He was not ready for this this job, and he uh, and uh, and and so and so little so that actually he, later on he would actually begin to imagine what, he, he would actually recall having long talks with Roosevelt about history and about which of course never happened Truman and we all we all do mm-hmm. this sometimes we all make up things that we wish had happened and Truman did that Truman did that too no there was no connection there was no no preparation at all for the presidency there was nothing and in fact just before right after the right after the inauguration Truman uh, Roosevelt was off to Yalta to meet with Stalin and and Churchill um and then uh, and uh, before that he had told Truman well if you must reach me send it by diplomatic pouch but but basically don't bother me and then and the only the, Truman basically asked for some patronage he wanted Robert Hannigan uh who was helped who had helped him helped him a lot win the win votes for his Senate campaign, he wanted he wanted him to be Postmaster General. And at that point, a friend of Roosevelt's was was Postmaster General Roosevelt. So that's an interesting idea. Let's I'll consider that. And that was basically their last interaction by by by, uh, by 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 message, and that was it. And then and then Roosevelt went after Roosevelt came back from Yalta. He gave a speech to Congress. He he got on the train, went down to Warm Springs, Georgia, and that's where he stayed until until the day he died, which was much so, which, tell- which was on March April twelfth. So tell us a little bit about how, and you actually have a picture. You have a picture of Truman taking the oath of office in your book. I had never seen that picture before, no. so I was fascinated by it, mostly by the looks on on his wife's face, Beth, and his daughter's face, Margaret. Beth, Beth looks absolutely horrified that her husband's yeah. going to be president of the United States. And Truman, of course, looks very dignified and very statesmanlike. But how did Truman get the word? About FDR's death and how did he react? By the way, those pictures, are, yeah, they're, they're extraordinary. I mean, she, um, you think at first, oh, this is their grief-stricken. No, they were horror-stricken. I mean, they were having a pretty, a pretty good old time while Truman was vice president. They would even they would go out to parties. Um, um, Margaret became Margaret became this sort of a protege of pro Mester, this Washington hostess, and so they were, and so no, he was. Uh, so so they, they were. Uh, so Truman, but Truman had to. Um, so then Truman suddenly had to had to go, uh, you know, he had to speak speak before the to the nation. And he sound he sounded he was he sounded horrible. He sounded someone like so almost like someone re- reading someone who was completely shell shocked. And and that's how he he acted. He told people uh, there was much quoted statement if you to, to report as boys if you pray for anybody pray for me. Uh, I felt like the moon and the stars. Had fall. This this was all said again by many many people. The, the, many many accounts have him meeting with Eleanor Roosevelt right after the w- word came to him, and, and uh, basically saying, "What what can I do for you?" He had been he had been planning to have a poker game that night with uh, with one of his friends, and then the word came, "You better get to the White House quick." And he got to the White House, and they found out quick that what what had gone on, and that was, and then that from then on his his life changed. He um 
his, he, he was been living in an apartment on Upper Connecticut Avenue in Washington, um, in sort of the, the sort of the south of, of, of a Chevy Chase Circle, uh, and he sent uh, there was a he, he brought his bring his had his wife and daughter come down for the swearing in, and that was, and that was it. They, from now on, from now on, he was president, Secret Service, all of it. He he um and and he, he he I think he lived in his apartment for a few more days, but then he moved to Blair House while across across the Lafayette Park while Mrs. Roosevelt stayed in the White House and then Truman moved to the White House. His life changed just like that. You mentioned yeah. You mentioned yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, you go through all the presidents and you look at Lyndon Johnson's face, you know, on Air Force One after yeah. November twenty second, sixty three. But you mentioned something a few minutes ago, and I want to make sure, since we're all history buffs here on the Leaders and Legends podcast, Truman was a great lover of history and a yeah. voracious reader. But in your book, and, and I'm sure that helped him kind of get through the transition period, right, and try to help help him understand the issues and make the right decision. But he he misapplied it sometimes, or his interpretation seemed a bit off. You detail that in the book. How do you think that Truman's love of history and perhaps sometimes sketchy interpretation of it affected his time as president and his leadership? Oh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, he, yes, he had, he had his own very peculiar reading of history, but I'm, I'm really not. I'm really not sure. I mean, he tended to, you know, we all sort of re, re, you know, reassess other uh, presidents. I mean, I think Truman thought very highly of Andrew Johnson, who was probably one of our worst presidents, and so on. I think, but I think he was. I think that I think Lincoln was Lincoln's presidency influenced him, and I think he just tried to be to, to be judicious. He yes, but he he read he was a great reader of history. One of the first books he read as a, almost as a child, his his mother who was a, who was who was who was a big reader herself gave him gave him gave this, this multi volume set called Great Men and Fam- Famous Great Men and Famous Women, and he read all of it. He read or he, and he he became sort of fascinated by 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 the king of some king of king of Sweden and and Robert Robert E. Lee had all these sort of heroes. So I think he became immersed in in, in our history, the Amer- American American history. But I don't think I don't think it very much affected his presidency i think he i think as i say he he became a, a, he he learned he was a, he was self taught and he kept learning and i don't so i don't think he said i what would what would, i don't think he ever said what would roosevelt do what would what would lincoln do that wasn't that wasn't his way and he never went to college or just went for a little while he, he went to night school for a couple of years basically he was maybe maybe even he, he might have become a lawyer but he didn't he didn't stay he had, he had to go work on the farm so not, that never happened so he's the i guess he's the only he's the only modern president who never graduated from college I mean, obviously, the, in in earlier days, uh, Abe Lincoln never went to college. Ronald, Ronald Washington never went to college. So but, uh, <laughs> he's in good in, company in, in the modern in the modern era. Yeah, it's true. But he didn't. I mean, the term "accidental presidents" always applied somewhat harshly towards vice presidents who come and who ascend to the Oval Office. His accidency, I think, is is that. I don't know if that's John Tyler, but it's one of them. I was, I can't remember yeah. which one, but he didn't jack around in a sense that when he became president, he became president and didn't, didn't like, Oh, I shouldn't be here. I mean, he may have lamented his fate, but it wasn't like from what I read that he acted differently because he didn't get there on his own. Yeah. I mean, I think, but yeah, I mean, it read again, it read at first, he was completely shell shocked. He went, he went to, a, from, I mean, he went to the, to the Hill where he was comfortable and, and 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 by by one account he said I'm I'm not ready for this I this job I'm, this is too big for me but that 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 was over pretty quickly he also realized he had a 
he had to do certain things. He had to make, he had to go to, he had to go to Berlin. Potsdam was this, or Potsdam, a suburb of Berlin, and he had a, he was basically duty bound to meet Churchill, uh, Prime Minister Churchill of England, and 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 Joseph Stalin, the, uh, the 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 leader of of Russia. And he didn't particularly want to go, but he knew he had to go. And uh, and uh, and he, and so that was uh, so he he jumped into it. He knew who else was going to do this, and he also realized that the United States was it. We were the we were the world's we were the world's only 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 power at that point. We were the, we were the superpower in every every way. We were we were we were wealthier than any other country. We were more powerful than any other country. And he was the president. So therefore, that alone that gave him the authority in some way that, that he if even if he didn't have it, he had it as being president. And I, th- I think he, he, that quickly he quickly realized that that being president of the United States was a big deal, even if he himself wasn't a big deal. And he and actually he came around on that. Well. Just to put this in greater context, too, before we move on, is in the sense that, you know, when Tyler took over for Harrison, was it like 30 days or 90 days? And and, and a lot of these folks, John F. Kennedy was president for roughly a thousand days. But but there were, I'm sure, part of the mentality of the shock of Roosevelt's death was that he had been president for more than 12 years. Yeah. And so you simply couldn't imagine a United States without Franklin Roosevelt as president. Yeah. So it's a completely different atmosphere or environment. Am I getting that right? Yo, absolutely. That's I, I was so struck by that. I mean, I can't. I mean, none of us can imagine having a president for twelve years. That would be, you know, that would be for the time we were, if we were eight years old, to the time we were, you know, we were twenty. I mean, I, I mean, it would have been the only thing we would have we would have known. People were so shell again. I, I don't want to use that word, but people were so stunned by Roosevelt's death. There was I had there were stories of people, you know, getting getting off of the wrong floor and when they went to work. I mean, people were just. It was really really something. Uh, and 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 hard to get used to it, and even even uh, I think and even and even Stalin was 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 kind of deeply moved by it. He, they they were they had a, they got along pretty well, if, if you could believe that Stalin got along and actually liked anybody. <laughs> but, but but apparently he he, he did. That Rosa, they, 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 here were two kind of big guys who had been in power. Stalin had been in since 1929, but but Roosevelt had been in since 1932. They've been around a long time, and they 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 kind of understood each other. And it's it's unimaginable that we could have anything. Like that today. I mean, this is obviously no president could be president for three terms anymore. For, for, for I mean, for more than two terms now. So, you're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is author and historian Jeffrey Frank. We're discussing his wonderful book that's gotten just terrific reviews all over the place. And the book is called "The Trials of Harry S. Truman: The Extraordinary Presidency of an Ordinary Man, 1945 to 1953." You mentioned it just a few minutes ago, uh, shortly there after he becomes president, just two or three months later, uh, he has to go to Potsdam, Germany for the latest meeting of the so-called big three. Yeah. And it's interesting dynamics because Yalta, I think it's in February of 45. This is in July of 45. And what was Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin eventually became Truman, Clement, Attlee, Stalin at Potsdam. But what were Harry Truman's thoughts about this this hugely important meeting and and his approach to it and what he wanted to get out of it? Yeah, by the way, Roosevelt, I mean, there was actually... Yeah, Churchill knew that he had, he had an election coming up. the The conference in Potsdam began, I think, on the fifteenth of July. And Truman, Churchill knew there was an election in the UK on the twenty fifth. He he hoped he would win, thought he might win, but he didn't win, and that that was the end. And then he left and never came back again. 
when Truman showed up in the back of his mind was this, he, he knew there was going to be the first test of, the, of an atomic bomb, the, the Trinity test in New Mexico. And, um, and he, no one knew what, whether this thing was going to work or not. They hoped it would work. They were, I mean, there were every, every reason to think it would work, but there was no idea. So Truman, Truman basically, he arrives in Potsdam on the, on, uh, on the 16th of July. He takes a, he goes on a tour of Berlin in the morning. He's originally so he's been he's he's driven around with his Secretary of State James F. Burns and some military and a military attaché, and they go look at all the rubble of Berlin. They drive past Hitler's Chancery, and this, this is nothing but. And then and then he gets back to he gets back to his to his villa in in Babel's, it's actually Babelsburg, this very fancy suburb of. Potsdam, and then he gets the word that this test had been a, this atomic test had been a huge success. It had been, I mean, there were actually reports that a blind woman saw could see the light. I mean, it was that kind of story that came in. And true, and but Truman realized this thing really was going to exist. This thing was going to change the course of the of the war. And when he told when he when Churchill heard about it, they, they they walked around like 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 someone said like two boys with apples sick in their pockets they were so happy and they kept they sort of kept down that was so that was a huge thing when truman knew that that he had this bomb in his pocket so to speak and he used he has to use that phrase then then he got he became a far more confident person than he'd been before and he churchill knew he he had to decide when he was going to tell stalin and he waited till late later the conference of course stalin probably already knew about it there's every every reason but truman did not know that stalin knew about it and uh, so well, there's the famous story, and I'd like you to tell a little bit because you mentioned it in the book, and I think it's one of the, your best an- anecdotes, probably not the best term, but one of the one of the best parts of the book is that Truman had, as a senator, tried to figure out where all this money was going to for this project, and Henry Stimson, who was Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of War, kind of a famous Republican, uh, from from the East Coast, as, as seemingly all of Roosevelt's cabinet members were from the East Coast. Something else yes. you bring out in your book, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> anyway, the westward shift happened then. Yeah, it's true. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And so uh, Stimson has a conversation with Truman that basically says, you got to trust us on this one. Talk a little bit about that. And what was Truman's reaction when Stimson finally after Truman became president, said, I must come see you and talk to you about something. Yes. Yeah, well, Truman, as I mentioned earlier, that Truman was chairing this, this what came, became the Truman Committee, looking into sort of sort of ex- expenses of the Defense Department. And there was, yeah, he noticed that there was, or one of his investigators noticed there was an enormous amount of money being spent in this place called Pasco, Washington. What was that for? He didn't know. So he went to see, he went to see uh, uh, Stimson and he said, what's this all about? And Stimson said, well, I, I can't tell you must trust me. And then Truman said, okay. And then actually Truman did, did Truman was not, was kind of annoyed. He felt, well, I'm a Senator. I have every right to know. He, he went back to Stimson and Stimson said, Stimson, Stimson basically said, really no. And he, in his diary, he said, he basically said this, this Truman's a sort of mean spirited guy. He was, he was very annoyed. And he told Truman, um, basically Roosevelt's going to be on your case. If you don't, if you don't shut up on this and Truman back, Truman did back off then. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when he became president and Stimson went to see me, there was no, there were no hard feelings. It was all understood that this was that, that, that this was the conflict or the tension between a legislator and a cabinet member, and it all, and it all went away. Truman got to quite like Stimson. And, and, and Interestingly Stimson. enough, perhaps uh, maybe ironically, uh, the bomb was detonated on July sixteenth, nineteen forty-five. I spent two and a half years in the army at White Sands Missile Range. And so when really? I was stationed there, yes, sir, 
I got to visit Trinity site uh, multiple times. And it's it's kind of like obviously in the middle of nowhere, uh, but it's just fascinating to be there. And you can see the fused glass, the sand. It's called Trinitite yeah. that got so hot because of the blast that it fused the sand into glass. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it for someone like me who loves history, it was a terrific place to be. But the possession of the bomb, you mentioned it gave Truman more confidence. Yeah. Did it also, in a sense give him the opportunity to play peacemaker in the sense that I've got the biggest, you know, firecracker in the world. So before we unleash all this, let's give Japan one last chance to surrender, which I think is it, is it called the Potsdam declaration where they said, you know, surrender or face utter ruin or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, I mean, that was never a serious. Yeah, they, they sure. Yeah, they, you, you better give up now, or, or you're going to we're going to rain rain destruction on you, such as you have never seen. But th there was no way that Japan was going to surrender there, and Truman knew it. Everyone, everyone, everyone knew it. And uh, so that that the the Potsdam Declaration, I think, went out on 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 July 25th, and basically the same day or the next day, Truman gave the order to drop the to drop the bomb. One of the things that happened, by the way, this before this happened, there were. Um, I, I, you know, uh, 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 the, the first the first target was actually was actually Kyoto. Kyoto was was the was number one on the target list, and uh, and that was and that was and, and the idea being that this would really demoralize the Japanese. This was Kyoto was had been the home of the of the Japanese emperor for a thousand years. It was a beautiful city of, sh of shrines and temples. Uh, if you've been there, you would see this. This there's not not one military reason to bomb Kyoto, but. And so, and Stimson, who had, who had seen Kyoto, went to Truman and said, "They will, they will never forgive us." And so, Truman's big people say that Truman's big decision was dropping the atomic bomb. His big decision was not to drop the atomic bomb on Kyoto. And the bomb was the, the decision was kind of made before he became president, and it was no. And um, so, and doesn't no Truman deserve not only in this instance, but throughout your book, throughout his time, high praise for listening? Just one of the things that came through when reading your book is that. You know, he generally gave people a chance to say their piece and listen to them, whether it was Stimson or Marshall or Atchison or Harriman or whomever is like, I want to know what you're thinking. And because I want to actually honestly put it in the cauldron and stir it up and see what we're going to come up with. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, he would also he really wanted he didn't want to take credit for to, for things that he that other people deserve credit for. He was very generous with with with, with passing passing around credit to others. He also really and of course, he was really uh, he had he was really lucky with his cabinet officers later on. I mean, particularly George Marshall, who who he who he said he's one of, he's one of the great ones of our time. So uh, he had actually a, a, I used the word almost a, a man crush on Marshall, and it was it was, it was he, <laughs> he, he did, he, yeah. uh, and it was so so it was so real that Marshall told his one of his biographers, Forrest Pogue, that I could get him to do anything, and uh, he, yeah. he said he that's right. I remember reading that in the Forrest Pogue books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, to finish up on on the a-bomb decision um, there has been at the time you know there were my senior seminar in undergraduate school was about the atomic bomb and the decision yeah. and the building of it which of course fit into my military service like a glove but there were a lot of folks including including chief of staff and five-star admiral william Leahy, who said the thing's never going to work and there were a lot of people who said, look, we don't have any sympathy for the Japanese. I mean, contemporaneously, like, you know, you Pearl Harbor, 
This is yeah. what this is, you know, this is what you have along with all the fire bombings they did of Tokyo and other cities like you're getting what you deserved. But post World War Two and certainly Vietnam era scholarship has somewhat or tried to make the case, whether it's Barton Bernstein or Gar Perowitz, that the Japanese were going to surrender. We didn't need to use the bomb. Truman made the wrong decision. What as a historian and someone who 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 lived through this Vietnam era, this re scholarship, what's your take on that? Did Truman make the right decision? He made. I, I say I, I think he made the only decision he, he could make. He the idea we were we were we were still actually when it, we we were still fighting this. The, the Japanese were a hated enemy. They had they had the the the, the Americans who had died at Okinawa already was a great great number. Truman was told that. That if we were have a land invasion of of Japan, uh, it, w- it would cost a half million dead. That that was not that was that was that was not a good a good estimate. But uh, but there was no there was no way that Truman could not could not do it. And 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 there was no way that that a president say a president in wartime would not would not do whatever he could do to end this war as quickly as quickly as possible. There's no evidence that the Japanese were ready to surrender. They weren't ready to surrender after Hiroshima. It took the Nagasaki bomb to finally bring them bring them to the table, and the idea that they could have been scared into surrendering by sort of a demonstration. Mm-hmm. That in the first place, the Japanese would have probably taken American POWs and put them into the target area, which would have been, a, which would have been, a, which would have sort of dissuaded us. The, the only I, I have a footnote. I kind of wish I'd put this in the text. I have a footnote in the book that Admiral Strauss, who later became the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, had this thought that we could we could have dropped the first bomb on the this is a demonstration on the Nikko Forest, where these huge cedar trees grew, and we would and then we would evacuate everybody and when and it dropped the bomb when everyone came back they would see these huge trees sort of scattered like windrows and you would then you would see the power of the bomb that that never went anywhere it might probably wouldn't have worked but anyway there was but there was that that sort of thing was out there but the idea that the Japanese would have surrendered. It, it, there would have been a lot, a lot more fighting going on. And people, by the way, the number of the the Jap- the, the, the atomic bomb killed many fewer people than the firebombing of Tokyo did, as, as, as you suggested earlier. I mean, so what did it last? I'm sorry. No, you go ahead, please. No, no, it was Truman. Truman never regretted it, and I'm not even sure he. I don't think he felt guilt about it, but he, but he wanted to, he wanted to stop it. That was after the second bomb. He said, "I don't want to kill any more." Kids, and yet there was a third bomb ready to go, and they might well, if the Japanese hadn't surrendered, we'll never know. But it was it was ready to ready to go, and it would have been dropped on Tokyo had they had the Japanese not surrendered. My great uncle, who drove a Higgins boat in eight major landings in the Pacific, including Okinawa, I asked him, you know, as I matured and grew up, asked him what he thought about the news, like when he got it. And he was very simple and he, you know, he wouldn't have been one of the uh, Marines or soldiers to hit the island. He was in the Navy, obviously. And I said, what did you think when you got the news? And he looked at me right in the face. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And he goes, I thought I was going to live. Yeah, I mean, there's a famous, fairly famous book by Paul Fussell, you know, which the title is Thank God for the Atom Bomb. And he was mm-hmm. exactly people who were on those ships who were in the Pacific. Uh, yeah, they were they were so relieved. And this. And uh, and the idea that that a, that a president would have left would have put them into harm's way when he didn't have to is, is, is preposterous. I think. Last question on this topic: A lot of arguments are made uh, to go back to Potsdam a little bit that Truman dropped the bomb to kind of show Stalin and the Soviet Union who's boss. What do you think of this theory? I just I just think if I think that 
I mean, it might have had some of, it might have, I don't think it had anything to do with dropping the bomb. I'm sure that it, it, it might have, it might have had some benefit, perhaps. James James Burns thought that there would, that would that would that would that would be a collateral benefit of dropping the bomb, but that wasn't why we dropped the bomb. We dropped the bomb to end the war against Japan. And you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. The McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is journalist, author, and historian Jeffrey Frank. We are discussing his book, The Trials of Harry S. Truman. I'll put a link on the podcast so that you can pick it up. It is a terrific, terrific effort. As I was telling Mr. Frank before the podcast, I have purchased five copies for my Democrat friends so that they can read about Harry Truman. Truman said, and it's detailed in your book, that the hardest decision he had to make or the most difficult decision he had to make was intervening in Korea. Take us through, please, Truman's mindset and his process as he committed American troops to the defense of South Korea. And when that happened, the, the, there had been a sort of rethinking of America's, America's goals. There was a national security paper called sort of NSC 68, which basically basically said that the that the alternative to 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 communist power over the entire world was to was to was to was to resist it in every way. Um, and uh, and when North Korea invaded the South in, in at the end of June 1950, uh, Truman was persuaded that it was. Imp- that it was important to 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 resist this, to resist this, and also also there was a commitment to the United Nations to to, to protect the integrity of a of, of a country being in, being invaded. This was, of course, this was the invasion was was local. It was a, it was sort of many people call you can call it a civil war between between north north and south. Um, uh, but what happened was, and I, the 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 war then very quickly the north it was a blitzkrieg. The north basically occupied was in control of almost almost ninety percent of of South Korea and Truman, and it became a bigger war very quickly. Um, and but then, but then it it could have turned around in September. I think it's done nineteen fifty. General MacArthur had his last great military maneuver, which which was the, this invasion land landing at Incheon, which was about thirty miles from Seoul, and that was so successful that the that the that the Allied forces by this time the, the Americans and basically the Americans and, and what was left of the South Korean army. Um, had basically pushed pushed the north out. We, the, the, we, the, 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 the American, they the occupied Pyongyang, and 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 the and the north was on the run then, and and they and that, that was the point where I think and many people think that the that that the war could have ended. The war could have ended in September 1950, and um, and with basically going back to the status to the, to, to, to the status quo ending, um, uh, the, the, uh, and and it would have been the. The, the 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 original boundaries of uh, between north and south. This 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 there was this arbitrary line, the thirty eighth parallel, which divided divided North Korea and South Korea. That didn't happen. After after that, the success of the Incheon landing, uh, MacArthur went ahead and got permission to go ahead from uh, to to sort of um, push push onward to push north. And, and just as just as the great leader of North Korea had wanted to unify Korea under 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 his under communist rule, MacArthur. Wanted to unify Korea under 
under the auspices of, of, of the Allies. And I, it began, I began to sort of see, I realized later that sort of like the analogy is sort of Gulf War I and Gulf War II. The Korean War could have been like Gulf War I. Gulf War I was to push the Iraqis out of Kuwait, which was a great success. That's what George George H.W. Bush managed to do. And it, and uh, Gulf, but Gulf War II became a much bigger, nastier, unending war about regime change. The Korean War could have ended after the Incheon landing, or pretty soon. Now, and but then it became a much bigger, wider, and nastier war about regime change, which never happened. Uh, and I, it, it became a great, I think, the great tragedy of the Truman of the Truman administration. And before it was all over, um, thirty-seven thousand Americans had died. Um, probably a million Chinese, hundreds of thousands of Koreans of North, North and South. And when it was all over, the, the North, North had picked up one city, but nothing, nothing, nothing else had changed. And it was never really over. The war still hasn't ended. There's, there was a ceasefire, but there was never, never, never a truce. And I, you know, I don't, I, I, you can't blame Truman for that. There'd never been a war like this before. There'd never been a limited war like this before. And, uh, but it was the, but it was the first of, first war of this kind for us. And we, we, we had different iterations for us later on, Vietnam, Afghanistan, but Korea, uh, Korea was the first time. And, uh, and, it, and it's, and I look at it, you look back, the more you look at it, see what a, it really was a great tragedy that didn't have to happen. But I, so you would grade, you would give Truman high marks, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you would give Truman high marks for the decision to intervene, but then lower marks for the decision to allow MacArthur to pursue the North Korean army north of the 38th parallel. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I basically, he basically gave up gave up control of the of the war to 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 his general, and people were afraid of MacArthur. MacArthur was a a big guy. Even General Marshall, when he became Secretary of Defense, I mean, he was uh, he was skittish about it. He was one of one of Eisenhower's uh, top aides. Said MacArthur was not a person; he was a personage, and people were people were very much intimidated by him. And uh, even though you have to realize that you think of MacArthur. Being the, he was not this great general. MacArthur did not spend one single night in Korea during the entire course of the war, uh, for, from from you know from June 1950 until he got fired in April 51. And, and then he the, was the stationed over in Japan. He was stationed over in Japan because yeah, he was, was kind of the overlord of Japan after World War II. Yeah, he was uh, but you, you make a great point. It, I don't think in our lifetime. I mean, I'm 54, a little bit younger than you, perhaps. But in our lifetime, we've ever had a general so, I want to say deified, but maybe revered or so respected like like MacArthur was in World War II and, and leading up to in the first year or so of the Korean War. Like, we just haven't experienced that. I mean, Colin Powell would be the only person that I could think of. But even though he was in Vietnam, he really didn't. He, he wasn't this demigod that MacArthur was. So, you know, for Truman, who was a captain of artillery in World War One, to tell Douglas MacArthur, five star general, this is how you fight the war was almost ludicrous. Yeah, he, I mean, Truman, Truman didn't like MacArthur even before he fired him. He in his diary, he would speak of this sort of he, he, he would he would say, I wish we had better, you know, people, not better people. But, but he was but he was he was also he was. He was sort of slightly. He was in, intimidated by him. General Eisenhower. You could, you could. I mean, President Eisenhower once remarked to Ann Whit, Whitman, his confidential secretary, about MacArthur. Uh, he, he had he had worked with MacArthur in in the Philippines. He'd been under MacArthur. I guess I forget whether he was a, a major or a lieutenant colonel. He was a major. And he said major. To, to Ann Whitman, "How could such a damn fool become a general?" I mean, there was a, he, he, was not, <laughs> he was not respected among his peers. 
and, uh, and that, which was the, which was not the same thing. But but he had a great, he had a great PR machine, and 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 that's where and that's where he got his power. And and he had and, and he had his fans in Congress. Eisenhower was the, to me the model of 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 of, of a hero president of a hero general who could who really could lead a country as and. Uh, I've, 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 this is off the subject, but I, I realize more and more and more realize as time goes by how how damn lucky we were as a country to have had Eisenhower as president when he was. Completely agree, and I, sh- I guess we should note, in fairness to General of the Army MacArthur, he once praised Eisenhower <laughs> by calling him the best clerk I ever had. <laughs> Uh, Truman fired Douglas MacArthur in an act that shocked the nation, shocked the country. Uh, Would you have fired MacArthur as Truman did? Oh, sure. He had MacArthur was told Truman at that point was trying to sue for peace, was trying to work out a peace agreement with the with the North. I mean, they, they never and or, or ceasefire. And he basically gave orders to MacArthur stop advancing north. MacArthur said, "I basically no." And that was that. That's that's what did it for Truman. That was a that was a, just that was a complete disobedience of a, a disobedience of other civilian authorities. So yeah, he had no choice. And he 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 met with the Joint Chiefs, and everyone agreed that was it. He had to go. So uh, and then MacArthur comes back to the United States, where he hadn't been for was it a dozen years or two dozen years or whatever it's been forever, yeah. and he gives this speech in Congress where he said famously said old soldiers never die; they just fade away. Yeah. But Truman got past that. I mean, he he didn't he regret. Did. He, Truman had sort of a very good instinct for a very good instinct for what would for for politics, and he he, he kind of kind of knew that this wasn't going to last. Yeah, MacArthur's speech at the time was a, a huge success. People had tears in their eyes. One one congressman said it was yeah, I used it. It was like hearing God in the flesh. I mean, but if you watch MacArthur's speech today, you see like you see this sort of you see this theatrical elderly man with a comb over and you see where did this come from and uh and yeah and then and then he did fade away he went on a he went on a tour visiting different places and and then the crowds got smaller and smaller and then there was a there were hearings about the, the war and macarthur testified and basically I, I could i can't sometimes you can't really read macarthur he, he he said he said when i saw the amount of death and destruction I wanted to vomit. I, I don't know he had since he since he'd given the orders that caused lots of it i don't, I don't quite know what he meant but uh what we, well, we we talked about because we were doing some Cold War uh, discussion here on the Leaders and Legends podcast with Jeffrey Frank. So let's let's give Truman his due. The 1948 election, he runs with Albin Barkley from Kentucky, I think, yeah. against Thomas Dewey, who was governor of New York, and uh, Earl Warren, who was governor of California, and. In probably the biggest upset until 2016, Truman wins re-election. We've all seen the newspaper photo or the photo of him holding, I think it's the Chicago Tribune, isn't it? Dewey defeats Truman. How did Truman win that race that almost no one thought he could win? By the way, and won handily. Yeah. By the way, yeah, the different the comparison to 2016 doesn't quite hold because Truman won the popular vote by a huge margin too. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't just the electoral college. Yeah, I, right. I think people people admired his. Well, I don't. First of all, the polls said he couldn't win. I guess the, obviously the polls weren't weren't all that that great. 
Pe- people didn't much like Dewey. Dewey was not a very appealing figure. He was a New Yorker with a mustache and uh, very, very, very slick. Truman was one of the people, and boy, did, and he was a fighter. And I think people admired that true. And also, Truman, Truman had um, Truman. Truman had, was a great campaigner. He loved campaigning. He connected he, he, on TV and radio. He, he was uh, he. It was terrible, but out on but out on out with the crowds, he connected with 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 voters. He was um he would also talk about the new the do nothing Congress, which was completely unfair. It was a do a lot Congress. It turned out that was the Congress that passed the Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. He had passed the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which one was very effective at using that that's that, that that sort of rhetoric. So he because the Republicans did very well in 46 in the congressional elections, yeah, which is part of the huge... reason why they thought Truman was going to get thumped. More than one, yeah. I mean, the, the Republicans took, took took both houses of Congress for the first time since 1928. It was such a loss that actually um, the, the, there was less sort of partisanship in those days because one of the a de- the Democratic senator from Arkansas, uh, J. William Fulbright, suggested that Truman should resign and that he should that he should appoint a Republican, a Secretary of State, and then resign. And then Repub- and Republican that could then become president. And they would save all this bother of you know, campaigns and elections and conventions and so on. And uh, Truman never forgot that. He later referred to uh, Fulbright as a jackass. But uh, but that Fulbright, that, that, and Fulbright was, stayed a thorn in the side of Democrat presidents all through the 60s, <laughs> yes, if I recall. That's right. That's right. But he did win. Truman did win. And he did win through vigorous campaigning. And I've always thought that of all the 20th century presidents, that Truman deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore of when it comes to just being politically savvy. Yeah, and he also, I think he genuinely believed that the whole point of being a president already is to try to do, do life better for people. And I think he tried to do that. He didn't, he wasn't a huge new dealer, but he did, he, but, but he, he made right. incremental improvements in social security and so on. But the thing he really tried to do was to try to get a national health insurance policy through. He tried three times and failed three times, but it, that was, that was, he really thought that was a, something he could do and it would, it would be a great thing for, 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 for his countrymen. So that was that, that, let's, that let's the talk. idea that being president, the, the point of it was to try to help your 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 your, your fellow Americans. This was uh, was, was was that was real, and I, I think people sensed that. So let's talk a little bit about uh, three things that happened. Um, I think during his first term, or, or we kind of skipped through him to get to Korea, and that is the Berlin airlift, the creation of NATO, and the passing and implementation of the Marshall Plan. Yeah. Three enormous events. Uh, one, you know, two of them, one of them an alliance. The other one, the last one I mentioned, the Marshall Plan is more of a program. But how the Americans handled the Berlin airlift to me is just it's just a, a morsel of brilliancy. I've read the book, The Candy Bombers, which is yeah. what the planes were nicknamed. Talk to us maybe if you want to in, in order of those three things how Truman was involved and and why you, you would give, as I think he deserves, why you would give and give Harry Truman, President Truman, high marks for all three. Oh, absolutely. He even he even I mean, he didn't actually have that much to do with the Marshall Plan himself, but he became his advisors did and the same with the Berlin Airlift. But the Berlin Airlift was a brilliant response to 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 what was happening. The Russians were. The Russians were, were were aggressively blocking access to Berlin, which was which was which as you which as you know was like a this little island in the island in the middle of of of, of east of East Germany, which was which was which was un, under under Soviet control. And so, was there going to be a war? Well, no. I mean, we the, the, a war would have been hopeless. Admiral Leahy, 
knew that there was no way we could fight fight and win a war there. And uh, and and when the, so when the blockade went up, what do we do? Well, there was actually one one entrance into Berlin still, and that was by air. And uh, there, there, um, they came up with the idea that, uh, that, that we could fly enough supplies, and, uh, uh, heating oil and food and so on, just keep to keep the Berliners warm and warm and fed. Uh, and and they, the thing that it lasted and it, it was a huge huge success and finally, and, and and meanwhile there was a counter blockade which was also affect hurting hurting the hurting Russia, and that so it, so that that basically then it that finally wound down NATO which which came in, in in actually the second term was a another huge success. Truman went it was it was it was this alliance of countries these North countries there were um, and, and Truman said let's try to compare it to a neighborhood watch group. And uh, which was uh, and and, and uh, <laughs> he's always the local politician, <laughs> always the local politician, but understood that's but but also that was a good way to explain it to his countrymen. We're we're like we're like we're like a bunch of neighbors trying to help each other. And so England, England, France, uh, uh, the, the Scandinavian countries, you know, we, we could we, we could all. And, and that's what that's that's what they what they did. And it was a very effective um, alliance. Um it changed greatly. I don't know. I always wonder what Truman would have thought about the NATO NATO expansion, which is, which one of his, which which George Kennan thought was maybe the great tragedy, of the uh, of, of, of the post Cold War era to expand NATO as it, as it was, but the Marshall Plan was the was the really was the really amazing thing. I ask, I think when you ask this, I ask this question. What would what we, this question had never been asked? What would a country that had unlimited strength, unlimited military power, and unlimited wealth? How would they how would they handle it? And the Marshall Plan was the answer to that. This act of extraordinary generosity, also self-interest, but generosity to sort of build, to sort of, to sort of re- rebuild these the 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 the, 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 the rubble of Europe and also the defeated nations of Europe, um, Germany, and then later on Japan. And uh, and it was ex- extraordinary policy and extraordinarily successful. And we're still feeling we're still real feeling the success of it today. And that's that's something that Truman, I think, will be more than more than anything. I mean, I get NATO in a in one way, but also the Marshall Plan in a big way, and the and the and the, the Berlin airlift was just it was it was a it was a sign of what we could do to what we could do with short of war to to defend our interests. We have a few more minutes with author Jeffrey Frank. You discuss, and then it was in this other book that I read uh, earlier in the year, Truman's achievements, Truman's attitude towards civil rights, post-World War II civil rights. If you read about some of the things that the treatment of returning African-American soldiers from World War II, it just makes your stomach turn. There's famous individual cases where people were beaten or murdered down in the South. Uh, You mentioned a few minutes ago as we started the podcast that Truman is basically the descendant of Confederates out there in Missouri. And he had a lot of friends in the Senate. The Democrats were disproportionately representing the South and had that Southern racist, there's no other word for it, bigoted attitude. And he was friends with them. Uh, How do you grade Harry Truman's uh, efforts and achievements on civil rights to include the report to secure these rights, which I think is a fascinating document? It is. I mean, he was, he really someone, uh, he's someone, he really was someone who transcended his own background. He did not particularly like African Americans. He he actually gave a speech which said, we do, they do not want social equality and basically making clear, well, we don't want it either, but, but, but they want justice. And he came to believe it, believe in that. I think what happened that, yes, you mentioned these horrendous 
of things things happening in the South. There was one particular case where a returning GI named Isaac Woodard was intentionally blinded with uh, by by a local lawman who basically put his his, his bullet right into it, right through his eyeballs, and and potentially blinded him. And that was that became a huge case, actually, so much so that Orson Welles, who by that time had a regular fifteen minute broadcast, talked about it. Would read the read the, the affidavit that, that 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 Isaac Woodard filed. Uh, Truman and so Truman was deeply affected by this, and he so he he actually spoke at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, and 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 with, along with these hated hated enemies in Missouri, of like people like Eleanor Roosevelt and and Justice Black and and uh, and the and the head of the NAACP, and he said basically, yeah, we we, we must we the African Americans or I mean our, our our Negro citizens deserve every opportunity to succeed to prosper in this country, just just as the rest of us. He once said something, and I've used this before, that he he said there are two pres- two people sitting at this desk. The president of the United States and Harry Truman, and when he was speaking about civil rights, it was he was the president of the United States. It wasn't Harry Truman who still had these. He still he still privately he used the N word. You know, he was still by by modern standards a racist. But the president of the United States was going to do what do what he could for all Americans, and that was so. I would give him high grades, and the civil rights bill that he proposed was sort of modest by modern standards, but it was enough to alienate the South. Basically, the South has stayed alienated. They walked out of the 48 convention, and then and that's when the Dixiecrat Party, the so-called Dixiecrat Party, was formed, and it was the third party in the 48 election. Just makes, this makes Truman's, President Truman's uh, triumph in the 48 election even more astonishing. I think it's yeah. one of the most incredible political achievements, Truman's uh, election in 48 in his own right, one of the most astonishing political achievements in American history that he could he could survive not only the Republicans who had just done very well in the 46 midterms, but the fact that the Dixiecrats uh, under Strom Thurmond siphoned away several electoral votes. And he had Henry Wallace and the progressives who were siphoning away some Democrat votes. It's just a remarkable achievement. Uh, Speaking of domestic achievements, uh, where would you you know, Truman famously left office in 52 with an approval rating at what 26 or 31 or something it was absolutely abysmal fluctuated i mean definitely in the low 30s at best yeah so how would you grade him as a we civil civil rights aside just domestically with everything he had to worry about in terms of the international situation do you believe he was a successful president in terms of domestic policy I, I do. I mean, I think that, and I think we, we begin to realize that as 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 our time as time goes by. I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know how I'd rank him. I mean, these these rankings are. I mean, great. He certainly was. He certainly was not a great, the great presidents. I think we we can all agree that Lincoln and Washington were our great presidents, and possibly Franklin Roosevelt was the other was the third one. That was kind of it. But Truman was up there. Truman, I, I think you, you you have to judge Truman or not how he was viewed in his time, which was always, which was not terribly favorable, but how, what he accomplished. And uh, Henry Steele Commager did a piece for, for Look Magazine late in his second term saying, say, yeah, for all these, we didn't mention all the sort of pathetic little scandals that followed him too. They were, uh, as he was leaving office, or the fact that he tried to seize the steel industry and was shot down by the Supreme Court. The Supreme, the Supreme Court, by the way, that was consisted entirely of justices appointed by Truman and Franklin Roosevelt basis. <laughs> Said no, that was, uh, and, but uh, but 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 for all that, it was it was what it was it was what he accomplished. The, he left the world safer for time, and 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 he and he made the country, and he and he did things for his countrymen. And by that, by those standards, he was a successful president. And we have to, and and and, and we, that's why we that's why we that's why we like him. 
And he was always, by the way, he was also, he was an honorable man for all of his flaws, for all of his vanities and so on. And he was a man, he deeply loved the Constitution. And he, and the, being an American, he was a patriot in, every, in the best sense of the world. He loved his, he loved this country's good history and it meant a lot to him. And he loved being part of it. And would you say, uh, how much credit would you give to David McCullough in his biography, Truman, in, in the revitalization and sort of revisionist look at, at Truman's presidency? I think it's very, it was very important. David McCullough's book really, really, I mean, became a bestseller. People began to say, oh, well, Truman. I mean, people were, people were already, uh, a lot of historians were sort of viewing Truman much more favorably, but David McCullough made it much more much more real, much more human. David McCullough wrote was an extraordinary sort of detailed, granular, cradle to grave biography. I mean, I you you mentioned that I did a I did a preface sort of covering Truman up up until the presidency. McCullough McCullough went back through generations of Truman. You really saw where he came from. So it was an extraordinary achievement with with McCullough's. But it was obviously he had a different a different goal. Mine was basically the biography of a presidency. McCullough was the biography of of of, of a person, a man. You mentioned his name a few minutes ago, and that that in some ways, Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general, was Harry Truman's beau ideal of a general, along with George Marshall. And if we're talking about leaders, we should mention William Leahy, who was the actually the highest-ranking military man in World War II. Most people don't realize that, but he was he received five-star rank before anyone else, one day before Marshall. But famously. Uh, President Truman and General Eisenhower had a massive falling out as we got into the 1952 campaign, which eventually was won by uh, Eisenhower. Talk to us a little bit about how they fell out. And and do you believe that Truman offered to step aside so that Eisenhower could be president in 48 or 52? Because Truman could have run for another term in 52 because the 22nd Amendment didn't apply to him. I believe that I believe the forty-eight story. I believe that when he that when he saw Roosevelt, I mean, when he saw Eisenhower in Germany before Potsdam, and he turned to him and said, "General, I will do. I can give you anything you want, including the presidency." I think he meant it. I don't know whether he would have if I had said, which I think Truman knew that Eisenhower would never have said, "Sure, give me the presidency." Uh, he, I'm sure Truman knew that that would never happen. But it was a way to tell Eisenhower that he admired him, and he did admire him greatly. Um, and so in 52, there was never an offer of the presidency to, to Eisenhower. But um, Eisenhower was being promoted by people, including Franklin Roosevelt's children, to, 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 to be nominated. But, but, and, uh, but Truman, 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 was basically, Truman was not going to run again in 52. He was worn out. His wife was worn out. And, he, and, and when he announced in April of 52 that he wasn't going to run again, that was, it was basically not much of a secret in, in, anymore. They're falling, the falling out with Eisenhower was sort of a sad story. I mean, they, they really did. I, they, I, Eisenhower really kind of liked Truman. Truman really admired Eisenhower. But when, but when, when the Democratic nominee, nominee Adlai Stevenson, was running against Eisenhower, and Truman, always the partisan guy, jumped into it. And I think what, what, what cut it for, 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 for Truman was when Eisenhower, when Eisenhower didn't defend George Marshall, who had been who had been Eisenhower's, you know, mentors and and his helper. I mean, who helped Eisenhower's career. And Eisenhower genuinely admired Marshall, but there was there was a moment in the campaign when Marshall was being trashed by Senator McCarthy and by Senator Jennings, and basically basically being accused of being a crypto communist. And and uh, and, and Eisenhower had defended MacArthur. I mean, had defended um, uh, I, 
I, I had marshaled in a speech, and, and the speech had actually been printed in the, in the New York Times as an advanced text. And then so everyone knew he was going to say this, but when it came to when he came to it, he was speaking in Wisconsin, the home state of Senator McCarthy. Eisenhower took it out of the speech, and it, it never ran. Truman thought that was gutless, and it was. It was. It was Eisenhower's. It was really a, a spineless moment. Eisenhower. I, I. I'm a great admirer of Eisenhower, but it was not a great moment. Eisenhower. It was basically welcome to politics, like, and he didn't. And he didn't <laughs> do the right. He didn't do the right thing. Do you? I'm going to Dave Truman yeah, for, the, for that. They 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 spoke. They they became courteous later on, though not during the inauguration. And uh, but they they never really I never really forgave him. I don't think. They they bonded a little bit when they saw bit. each other at the funeral of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. And but, and but, that kind of thawed it a little bit, but they never became close again, if I remember. No, I mean they're right. They they had coffee together and. Eisenhower visited the Truman Library to sort of see how do you do this with but there was never there was never any, any closeness between them after after the fifty after the fifty two campaign. Let me ask you one final question before we move on to the five questions that we ask all of our guests here on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Do you have a favorite Truman story? I mean, I. I mean, there's, so many, there's so many. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I sort of like the I sort of like the familiar ones. I sort of love the I sort of love his attack on the music critic of the Washington Post after uh, after he after he gave a bad review to his daughter. This is a famous story, but I but but there's more to it than that. He he wrote this letter that 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 had he had just he was in a terrible state. He had uh, the Korean War was going on, and uh, and his press secretary, Charlie Ross, who had, who had been a friend since childhood, had just suddenly died at his desk. The Truman was in, was, was in an emotional mess. And then his daughter, Margaret, gave a, gave a recital at Constitution Hall, and by God, she got a bad review from the Washington Post critic. And it was not, it was really a nasty review. And Truman was so ticked off that he wrote a letter to, to Hume saying, uh, if I ever run into you, you'll You'll, you may need a new beefsteak for your eye, maybe a, 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 a supporter below. And uh, and this letter, I, I mentioned Charlie Ross. He this would never letter would never have gone out had Ross lived. There would have been an outbox. He would have seen it. What is this? And but Truman went left the White House and put it in a mailbox. And that's how it got. That's how that's how it was delivered. So I, I sort of love that story. It was a, this was this was Truman being free and unrestrained. My favorite Truman story, you mentioned it, uh, you alluded to it, uh, is that when the date of Dwight Eisenhower's inauguration as president, uh, Dwight Eisenhower noticed his son, John, who had been deployed to Korea. His son, John, was in the audience and Eisenhower was was convinced that it was done to embarrass him Yeah, and personally. And Eisenhower looked at Truman and goes, who ordered my son here? And very, you know, Eisenhower had a very famous temper, very curtly looked at Truman and said, who ordered my son here? And Truman's response, which is just absolutely perfect. He looked at Eisenhower and said, the president of the United States did. <laughs> I just love that. It's so Truman. I know. Eisenhower later on was, I mean, Eisenhower was not ungrateful for this. I mean, he really, he appreciated the gesture, but at the moment, yeah, it's, it's true. The Eisenhower temper really came out there. Truman's like, I'm the president of the United States. And I did. And for, you know, for the next 10 minutes, I'm the president and I'm in charge. Terrific. Brilliant. That's very much, very much in line with what we talked about. Before. There are two people at this desk and it wasn't Harry Truman. It was the president who did this. Yeah, exactly. It's time for the five questions with journalist, author, and incredibly gracious guest, Jeffrey Frank. Mr. Frank, are you ready? 
these are harmless, I promise. Mr. Bain, I don't know how I'm going to do here. I'm a little, a little worried. Oh, these are all, you, you, you'll get an A no matter what your answers are. Oh, we're we're okay. easy graders here. Uh, number one, what was your first job? Um, I guess I, I, my first, I had the first newspaper job at the Ithaca New York Journal, which was a great, great fun. My, my, my what wife was going to Cornell and we happened to move up there. Oh, what was your first concert? My first concert? Uh, well, my sister became a cellist with the National Symphony, so I, it was probably some concert by the National Symphony when I was a kid, dragged to by my father. <laughs> my Number three. Concert was, my first rock concert was uh, in Washington. I saw some of the... I used to go to the Howard Theater, and I would see I would see people like Bo Diddley when I was a kid. And so that was, those were my first... My, my kind of concerts. <laughs> <laughs> that works for sure. Yeah. Number three. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh my goodness! I mean, that's. Uh, I guess I'd, I would. I mean, I would recommend a, a, a novel. I mean, I would recommend Middlemarch. I mean, something just something to get us away from this, from from from, from this from this time. I would recommend, and I would recommend histories. I would recommend. Um, I would recommend a book, a, 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 a biography of, of, of Theodore Roosevelt. I would recommend. I don't know. I'm just trying to think. There's so many. I'm, I'm I'm reading several things right now. One of them is like I, I, this. This just kind of sticks me because I'm reading. I'm, I'm actually reading three or four things right simultaneously right now. I'm, I'm reading Eric Larson's *In the Garden of Beasts*, which is kind of wonderful. Mm -hmm. Which I'm reading mm -hmm. in, in reading in, in, in conjunction with Mark Leibovich's *Thank You for Your Servitude*, which is also kind of wonderful. And they're two 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 sort of stories of of of, of enabling <laughs> of, of enabling. <laughs> Eric Larson's books get mentioned quite a bit. When yeah. I ask this question of other guests, I'm currently I, I, reading. I just, I'm late coming uh, to that, so I'm, I'm reading it right now for the first time. I'm reading Harold Holzer's book on the press and presidents, which is oh, terrific, yeah. terrific. Oh, yeah. And he was—he's come on the podcast twice. He was an amazing, amazing guest. Yeah. Thank you, Ruthie. Number four: If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I suppose the Gettysburg Address. I mean, I couldn't. I would have been such a such a great moment to to have to have to have been there to the, that horrible war, and then to have heard Lincoln deliver that amazing address. I like to think that I would have heard it and reacted and realized that it was something special. Unlike the Chicago newspaper that said the dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States, perhaps the worst speech review in the history of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Last question, and this will be interesting because I know you've had dinner with a lot of amazing people, but if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? I mean, my, that is really unfair because I, I don't think I, I can't think of any politician I would want to have dinner with today. Um, well, Barack Obama and George W. Bush are the two most popular answers, just to give you yeah, a I'd, I'd rather. I feel like there's nothing they could. I wouldn't have heard before from either one of them. Okay, I'll, but but I, I'm sure that Barack Obama would have some great gossip to to to, to spread. I would enjoy. I'd, I'd like to sit down with Mitch McConnell if he would open up to me. He's a Mitch McConnell. That's a good answer. If he would open up. I don't know, but I hear that he doesn't open up. I've uh, I've. Uh, but then, but if I could, if I could, but I would still. I would love to have dinner with Richard Nixon, but he's not around anymore. <laughs> I, 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 I once and, uh, what about monica crowley she wrote those really good books or i'm, you know, I'm sure you know I, i'm actually in monica's book 
And what about Pat Buchanan? He's, I mean, he's wrote two terrific books on Nixon, The Greatest Comeback and Nixon's White House Wars. I mean, they were something else. You must well, know Monica's Pat Buchanan. Book, I'm actually in Monica Crowley's book by name. For? I, I had actually, I had tried to get, okay, this is, this is uh, when I was at the Washington Post and I was in the Outlook section, and this was toward the end of, of, of George, the first George Bush's term. And I thought, well, we, well, let's get Richard Nixon to write about the, 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 about the, uh, the relations with the Soviet, the Soviet Union. This is when Yeltsin had taken over. And so I said, oh, Nixon will never write for the Washington Post. Well, so let me give it a try. So I called, I called, I called his house and there was Monica Crowley who answered the phone. And she said, I'll see if he can he'll do it. And so, and, and uh, so he sent a piece in, which I thought was pretty good. I edited it pretty hard, sent it back. I got it back the next morning, much better version than I did. Nixon had re-edited it and made it much better than I had made it. And uh, and we ran it. It was it was it was a great. Apparently, the fact actually the piece actually had some effect on, on on on, pol- on our policy vis-a-vis Russia, and I and I became friends with Monica. We actually ran Monica's excerpt in, in the New Yorker. We ran an excerpt from Monica's book about. about I'd love Nixon. to have her on the podcast to talk about Nixon. Would absolutely yeah. love to. I need to maybe I need to take a flyer and reach out to her. She's great. I don't I do not understand her feelings about the last president, but I, but we, but we, but I, we're, we're still very good friends and we just don't talk about that. I think that's, that's I a would say something like, what would Nixon attitude. Do? <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmon construction leaders and legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Jeffrey Frank, who is the author of The Trials of Harry S. Truman, The Extraordinary Presidency of an Ordinary Man, 1945 to 1953. Please, please buy this book if you want to burnish your history of Certainly the early years of the Cold War, I can think of no other better book to read. It's been an absolute honor to speak with you, Mr. Frank, and I thank you in advance for coming back soon to talk about your book, Ike and Dick. Thank you so much for your time. I very much enjoy your writings. Mr. Vane, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. I really had fun being with you, except for the last question. I said I couldn't think of I want to have dinner with. I'm sure we can have dinner sometime if you were ever in the East Coast. I'd like that very much. I was in Manhattan about... uh, four or five months ago. And so if I'd known, I'd have looked you up. But if I go back, you can count on it. It's very, very kind of you to say that. And thank you for your time. And I look forward to the next interview. I do too. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.